Um, when, I was, when I was a kid, uh, we had VHS cassette tapes uh, because I, I'm, I'm just at the right age to be in there, you know? So we had all these cassette tapes and we had a lot of, I was one of five, so we had a lot of cassette tapes because we had all these movies that were filed in there. And the thing about cassette tapes is that you always lose the sleeve, so it's just these black rectangles and we had two cabinets where you'd open them up, both sides, cassette tapes, middle cassette tapes, and you'd just go in there and you would, you would search forever to find the thing you're looking for because it was just haphazard. Honestly, if they were returned rewound, that was a miracle. They were never put in a spot where you would expect. They were, they were filed in all over the place. And so my brother had this idea one day that he was going to take all of them, all them out. Jake did this. He, he went in and he took all the cassette tapes out and he laid them out and he, and he was going to organize them by genre. Now this was, we'd never, we don't organize them. So we're going to take any organization he would do. He had action movies and he had comedies, but then he had weird things that made sense to him. He was like, this are movies you would watch on a sick day. These are movies maybe you'd want to watch on a rainy day. And so, like I said, we had no organization, so it was a better system to say, okay, I think, I think the 1980s BBC Narnia Voyage of the Dawn Treader seems like a thing Jake would want to watch on a sick day. Let's go to sick day section. And he spent all day doing this. He, I mean, he, he really thought through these genres. He worked through them. And like all boys that accomplish something, he wants to show mom. So he brings my mom in. And she looks at it, and she's just standing there as he's giving the tour and looking at all this, and she's in shock. Because like I said, we never organized them. However, like a day or two days before, she pulled them all out and organized them in alphabetical order. <laughs> you see, no one wants to feel their work is wasted. Both of them learned their work was wasted in that moment. Jake just realized his work was wasted all day. My mom just realized her work was wasted. And it, it was just a massive mess. We've been uh, talking for two weeks about foundations. We're ending this today. Last week, I said what I wanted to talk about very specifically last week was the foundations of teaching and understanding that we have that we learn in, the ways that we process information. So we looked at Christ's teaching as being the foundation. Uh, today, I want to talk about the pursuit of a lifetime. As our life builds up, the foundation of a life, what are we building towards? Because none of us want to build a life in vain. We don't want to finish the work and find out we just wasted all of our time. I think one of the more interesting ways to do this is we're going to look at a letter to Corinth. Corinth, if you're not aware, is the problem child of the New Testament. They were the most difficult church. Uh, they had their way of doing things. And so the other churches, they get these nice letters. Ephesus gets wonderful love letters. Rome gets deep theology. The Galatians are called stupid ones, but they're given a lot of great stuff. It's, they, everybody gets something nice. Corinth, is, it's two spankings. They're both, they're both verbal spankings. And uh, we're going to be in spanking number one, 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's bare bottom. This is a serious spanking. Um, this is a, a, a body that's trying to be built up. It's, it's trying to grow. Paul's planted this church, and what he sees as he writes in these letters is there's character issues, deep character issues that are, are evolving in this church. And what he sees is that there are character issues that are resulting in bad teaching, not bad teaching that creates character issues. Character is so critical uh, in the New Testament for teachers and, and believers in general. And we hear all these teachings of false teachers. 
warnings about this all the time. The, most, the book that speaks the most on this is Jude. And the meaning of Jude at the end is that false teachers aren't necessarily false in what they say. They're false in who they are. That they, that they teach and they do these things to bring power back to themselves, resources, wealth. And so character really, really matters for those that would consider themselves teachers. So they're about to have their eyes directed back, back to the foundation of who they are, and they're going to look at the building plans. Are they building the church in Corinth correctly? And it's a good study for us because it's a question of are we building our lives unto God or are we building them unto ourselves? Because this impacts, yes, a church, but it is driven by individuals, personal lives, character issues, and he is saying, go back and see the foundation, be redirected to it. So we're just going to jump right in. We're going to start in, um, geez, I hope I got this right on there. It should be starting in one. If I got that wrong, uh, that is going to be on me. Does it start in one? Let's see. Put it up there real quick, Donette. It does. All right, everyone just listen up. I will read. Uh, I got it in here in my notes wrong. I gave it to Donette wrong. But it's supposed to start in one. We're going to be in one, uh, chapter three, starting in verse one. Brothers and sisters, I do not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, but solid, uh, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, uh, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not acting as mere humans? For, what is, uh, for after all, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom uh, you came to believe as the Lord assigned each their task. There's this uh, breakdown that is happening in Corinth of, of getting into a cultural system of who, who is your, who's your guy, who is your teacher, Schools of thought. And this is, a, this is a system that we see still in play very much. Uh, it still happens around the world. In fact, you'll notice Orthodox Jews will often wear different hats, do their hairs different, different colors. Those are actually signs of which rabbi is the rabbi that is the patriarch of their teaching system. He could be living or dead, but they will wear and dress in such a way to show who they belong to. Belonging to a particular teacher would grant a certain sense of status that I am of the school of thought of and fill in the blank. And bringing this immature carnal system to the church is creating incredible division. Because what it does is if we get so focused on people, who do we listen to and who is, who's our person, we lose track of what they're losing track of. That Christ is over all. Who is Paul and who is Apollos but people that are sent by Christ? If we focus on teachers, we forget that we are united in Christ. We lose sight of this over-shepherd and start building our lives in ways that uh, are an absolute mess. It's important that we remember this also as a church, as denominations, as we're spread across. In fact, uh, the first four-square church ever has this on its foundations. Uh, that's Amy Semple McPherson, Sister Amy, as they called her. We stopped doing that, which is why you don't call me Brother Samuel, which is totally fine with me. Um, dedicated, this is, this is what's written on the foundations of our first church as a denomination, dedicated unto the cause of interdenominational worldwide evangelism. 
that it was important to us as a movement that if we are going to become a central movement with teachings of healer, savior, coming king, baptizer, the four square, the four parts of our four squares, that we would remember that, that we are founded for the universal church, for all of us to come together, interdenominational worldwide evangelism. It was critical for our denomination to remember that Christ is the head of the church and it's the thing that unites everybody. We wouldn't lose sight of that. When you're divided over people, um, we find that the following things happen. We find fault when a rival speaks. If you find that you don't like a certain way a person thinks when they get up there and they belong to the other school, you would find fault with them. If you're part of the Apollo school and the Paul people go up, you're not going to listen to a thing they're saying. You won't be focused on truth. You certainly won't be focused on how the gospel comes to you first and is meant to pierce your heart. You'll be thinking of ways to fault find them. And you will not comfortably and authentically associate with people from that other group. And in the end, growth is completely stunted because we become frozen the moment we become petty. I remember talking to Caroline Christensen one time and she was saying that she could always tell when, if someone got addicted to drugs and they're coming out of it, she said, I can always pinpoint when it happened because they act exactly that age. She said she could meet someone and go, I placed their emotional maturity about 14. And that's when it started. That's when the addiction started because we stop growing up when these destructive things come in. This is what's happening to the church. When he says that you are like infants, he's not saying you're intellectually dull and that's the problem. You need to memorize your times tables and get your vowels and consonants down. This isn't what he's discussing. The problem is that their character flaws and their issues are making them dull. It's freezing them out. You see, what's interesting and it's embarrassing for Corinth, they wanted to be the intellectual powerhouse of the, of the church. They thought they were, they were in international ports. They just thought we're gonna, they'd be very urban, have all these ideas and these great teachers. This is what they really wanted to be. A mantle that actually belonged to Rome. Uh, historically, we know that Rome actually was the church that often settled disputes. The bishop of Rome was always the most wise person in the church. It's why eventually that position becomes the position of the Pope in the modern Catholic church. But that was Rome's mantle. It wasn't Corinth. But like all haughty attitudes, it turns a person into an intellectual minefield. You see, they wanted to be teachers, but they didn't want to be students. If you want to be a teacher and you don't want to be a student, it's a pathway to to an intellectual wasteland within your mind. Haughtiness is defined as this. As I I put this word in here and I thought, eh, we don't use that all the time. How often do you use haughty on a normal daily basis? Unless you went to Bible college, not very often. It's blatant. And it's as a person who's blatantly and disdainfully proud. When I think about this, did you ever notice, like, think back when you were in school, in classes, the person who was most haughty, lordy, sure of themselves, tended to be the one that made the most mistakes. Is that just my experience? When I went to Bible college, we had to take this exam right out of the gate. Do you need to take writing? Uh, And all of us that failed that took the class, I was in there with us. And they gave us this textbook. It was Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. You guys ever read Eats, Shoots, and Leaves? It's a comical grammar book. Uh, it's, a, it's an English guy. He's trying to be funny. I think he wrote it for younger people than college, I would take when you read it. But it was enjoyable. I was like, yeah, whatever. Well, we'll read it. Like, we all failed the test, so apparently we need it. And so we're reading through it, and this girl, she's just, 
She's so mad because at the beginning of the class, the teacher would read maybe a, a paragraph she wanted us to remember as she gets into a lesson. And she was like, this is so patronizing. Do we honestly need to be here? It's an enormous waste of our time. And I was mad because I actually really like the teacher. You ever meet Joanne Hubbard? She is an angel. The Carls know. You guys actually knew her too. Yeah. Joanne, you'll fight for Joanne. You know what I mean? Like, if this was a man, it would have ended in the parking lot. I just, you can't talk about Joanne that way. So she's very, uh, and so you kind of assume with this attitude, well, maybe she's better at writing than the rest of us, and this is just below her. But they did an exercise that everyone loves in writing class. You write something, you bring it in, and then you hand it to the person to your right, and then they all mark it down for what you screwed up. We did this numerous times. The worst I'd ever seen was by that girl. I took hers and I thought, what have you been doing? Did you read Eat, Shoots, and Leaves? Commas, people. It was a mess. And what I, what I find is uh, that experience, and I hear stories from Elena's in nursing school. She's seeing similar things happen there. Humility is the door to true learning and growth. If, you, if a person is, is devoid of humility, uh, what their inheritance is going to be foolishness. If, if humility is not a door you want to walk through, you, you just won't move past that moment. And the infant picture is a very humbling picture for them. Because uh, is, uh, what it is, is he's, uh, you belong on a diet of milk is an embarrassing term. And Paul is depicting himself as a mother who breastfed the church and never fed it anymore which is a really weird picture of the Apostle Paul. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, an, almost an insult. Like you, you're like an infant that's still at the breast and you're so ignorant and you don't know what you're doing and you can't, you can't, who are you to decide what is solid food and what is not? Paul doesn't believe he's dealing with an intellectual problem, but a maturity problem. It's yielding intellectual dullness because pride cut off is a lack of, it, when pride comes in, it cuts off true learning. It will be the earmark of those who cannot learn. And it was a stunted lack of learning in them and the entire church. Paul ended that statement saying, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Aren't they just underservants of Christ? And that's why this division is so stupid. Paul evangelized the church. He was the one that started it. He, he converted people, primarily Jews. He got some Gentiles. The church begins. It begins to spread. He leaves, and Apollos shows up at some point. We don't know how long he was there, but he shows up, and what we do understand is Apollos must have been a very profound teacher. People really liked when Apollos spoke, and so Apollos comes in. He teaches the church, continues to expand it. So you've got Paul who evangelized and starts a church under the authority and tutelage of Christ. Apollos comes in and continues to grow that church under the tutelage of Christ. They're getting obsessed with the two under-shepherds who will not consider the over-shepherd. Why divide over these servants when both were sent and blessed by the same master? Jesus should be the focus of their community and nobody else. And the new foundation they're standing on won't last. In all, in all of the things that we do, it's critical that uh, we realize that there's only one foundation that will last, that lasts the testing. And that is the foundation that is Christ. Donette, now we are starting in verse 6 in genuine. <laughs> so, starting in verse 6. 
I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything uh, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. We're moving on to 10, right? All right, good. I'm so sorry, everybody. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the, uh, the day will bring it Excuse me, to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but will yet be saved, even as... Uh, even though only as one escaping through flames. The point is that Christ crucified is the superstructure of the church. And historically, church movements that move away from that, that make their organization about not just the the redemption and and those things, they tend to not last. Uh, Historically, one of the more recent ones is the vineyard movement got into very much sensory, experiential kind of uh, things. They, they lost sight entirely of evangelism. They lost sight of, of preaching the gospel, and it fell apart in time. Televangelists that preyed on their viewers and made their shows about prophetic soothsaying were brought low and exposed throughout the 80s and 90s. There's an old saying that if the foundation is not Christ, the building is not the church. We are not the ones that can define what it means and just say that we can somehow loosely tie it to Scripture and make ourselves about something very different. A church built on Christ crucified is the church that's built on spreading the redemption of the gospel. Such a church dreams of reconciling the world to God, and such a church wants to see Jesus at the head, that he would take the glory and that he would make his people whole. I would hope that we, as as living way, we would remain focused that our goal is still to be, we are the interest group of the kingdom of heaven that says 2,000 years ago, Christ died for the ransom of everybody in this city and that he rose again to give them new life and that we wouldn't fall into a suburban trap that churches can fall into of becoming an organization that's just about safety, some bulwark against rising destructive cultural norms, but that we would go far beyond that to testify to Sandy that our God reigns, that he died for you, that he rose from the grave. That's why we are here. That is our mission. We will be a place where people can grow and learn in that knowledge, where people can come and find answers with that. And we will live to try to find any way we can creatively get that message out. Because after you meet Jesus, the life you build, the choices you make are twisted around the realities of this. Or you're building something that's fragile and vulnerable. What's interesting, if you really look into the the context, the syntax of this passage, the fire is interesting because it's not said as punitive. There's certain ways he could have said it that would have made it punitive. It's being said in this passage as refining, exposing. Everyone's work is tested. Certain life pursuits we devoted ourselves to that we built up on, 
were not built on a good foundation, and they're just not going to last. But some of them that we build, some of our life pursuits are going to be eternal glory. Uh, Last week, we had a memorial service for a longtime elder, Paul Norman, who was in this church. And as we reflected on his life, there's so much to be said about his time with the forestry service, his love for the outdoors. But the legacy he left behind, the reason why we went to a, a very large church in Gresham, we told them how many would be there, and they still had to wheel out more chairs. We packed the place out with people whose lives were touched by Paul because Paul Norman built some things that last forever. And that was on a firm foundation. He believed in God's work and the things he sowed on that foundation stand. I watched this show called uh, Alone, I guess because I'm an uh, uh, introvert, so that's just the wonderful title for me, Alone. So in Alone, 12 contestants get just chucked into the forest somewhere. They're given cameras, taught how to film themselves. Last man or woman standing gets, I think it's $500,000. It's, it's quite the purse. Uh, and they're, 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 they could be there. The record was something like 95 days, and it's just them and like a knife, <laughs> and they just, they just get it done. There was a guy who's doing really great. What's funny is right before his disaster happened, he started talking cocky. He was like, I think I can be out here for months. I'm settled, and he, he just caught a bunch of fish. He's feeling good, and the chimney catches on fire. The house catches on fire. He runs outside. They've got these emergency walkie-talkies. We're like, hey, I need you to come get me out of here. It was in the Arctic this season. And they said, we can't get to you because of the storm. So you need to keep warm on your burning fire of a home until we get there at sunrise. So he's just just there watching everything burn. Everything's gone. Everything burned. Months of work. And we watched him work for months. Gone. Every animal, everything he built, burned up. And what was interesting is he, he, he's, they muse so deeply when they leave, you know, as they're talking to the cameras, they get out. And he had realized that, you know, he went there for all this money, but when you get this idea that life itself is so worth it, you would let everything burn down to escape. He had an idea of uh, he was still leaving with a bit of a lesson from alone. He didn't get the 500 grand, but he had a new appreciation for his own personal life. What matter happens, or what, what matters always reveals itself when the shaking and testing takes place, when it's refined. So the lesson from Christ is to seek first the kingdom of God. You worry about clothing, he says. You worry about food, shelter, but doesn't God take care of animals? If he would take care of animals, if he takes care of flowers, won't he take care of you? You who are made in the image of God, the heir of all things he created, won't he care for you? So quit worrying about them. Instead, make your entire life pursuit, the meaning of your life, building up a foundation towards a pinnacle that that all comes to one point, unto God, into eternity. My life will be built for what happens ahead. To seek first his kingdom, and he'll take care of the little details. That that would be our life pursuit. The pursuit of a lifetime, the journey of a lifetime, the adventure of a lifetime making this life count for eternity. Peter writes, uh, he quotes a passage in his epistle. He says, uh, he quotes saying, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The cornerstone was the first thing laid in a building. You would lay it, get it just right, super picky, because the building would project out from that. So you would lay it out in the city first with the cornerstone. 
And it's, it's this picture of just life having to be remade when Christ shows up. Imagine we're building our lives. We got our cities going. We're all working together. We've, we've been at it for years. Things are looking good. And suddenly God walks in with this enormous heavy stone and he chucks it into the earth in the middle of town square and goes, that's supposed to be the outside wall. And we look at it and we look at what we've been building and we look at it, we look at what we've been building. We go, hold on, wait a minute. If that's the outside wall, then we're going to have to knock the library down. The, the, the town square is in the wrong spot. Some things we can keep, but you are telling me that nothing is sacred, that everything in this city that I've been building my entire life is, has to be knocked down to fit this? Yes. Nothing is sacred except for that which lines up with that foundation. Except for what lines up for the eternal purposes of Christ, nothing else in your life is sacred. Nothing's untouchable. Everything we hold dear needs to be held a little less so dear. This is the humbling crucible that these things start with, that life must be subject to change. To be rearranged at his will and for his purpose. This means letting go of what your pride wants. It means developing attributes and skills that matter for eternity. The Apostle Paul said elsewhere in Galatians, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. I'll tell you, not everyone's called to full-time ministry. This is, I'm not saying that the, the cornerstone has showed up. You have to quit your job and come join me on staff. It'd be great. It'd be even better if we could afford you. Um, <laughs> Not everyone's called to do this and quit it and do it vocationally. But you are called that every area of your life, career, work, and everything, would be submitted and under that. That God could take the, your, the way you work, the things you're doing, the, what you build your life towards, and they would be in his hands for his eternal purposes. To serve God's beloved everywhere and express your faith through love. I thought of three things that summarize this. One is to dig deep in your faith. Don't shrink back as a student. Don't think that you've read it enough. You haven't. None of us have read that Bible enough. None of us have researched it enough, read commentaries enough, gone into it, asked questions enough. Go back to your faith and explore it with the excitement of a little kid again. Rediscover that youth of salvation and dig deep in it once more. Second, be lavish in your love. As it says, don't grow weary of doing good. I know it can hurt to be compassionate. A lot of us can feel compassion fatigue or worn out from being there for people and things still fall apart. And I would encourage you, remember the joy of your first salvation. How groundbreaking that was. How deep it goes. Those moments that you were pulled up and remember that maybe through your evangelistic kindness, your willingness to be there for people, your lavish love for others might just end in someone responding to the calling the same way you did. And finally, remain humble in Christ. If you remain humble, knowing that nothing in your life is sacred except for what's laid by him. Everything can be moved, change. It's subject to change. This is what lordship means. If we can allow him to adjust us, he'll make sure we're standing on that firm foundation. 
If we can trust him that if we pursue first the kingdom of God, he'll take care of all the other things we're trying to build additions for. If we stand on that foundation and we build our life on that, that this life is about the kingdom of heaven, what we'll find is that we're going to build a life that matters and stands before God forever. Maybe we could be like Paul Norman and pack out our memorial service with people whose lives were eternally touched by us. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, this morning, it can be so scary when we've been working hard and building life and building towards something. All of our life pursuits and to think to ourselves, maybe I have to throw it all in the trash. Would you give us faith that anything that goes in the trash is actually trash? That the eternal things that matter are the things that are built on your firm foundation. Lord, we understand that you're good. You don't come to starve your kids, to make them homeless, to give them no clothing. You take care of those things. You care about them. Let us then reciprocate with a life of faith that sows into eternity, that our life would be built on a firm foundation, that the labor of our life would end with something that endures forever, and that we could present to you in eternity. Give us courage to to break free from those things. And Lord, I pray that there would even be a prophetic sense of hope in people in this room that they, they felt like they wanted those things, but you begin to whisper just how great things are that are built on the foundation, that it would be empowering to drop things we once held so dear. And we would count it all as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Redirect our hearts, Lord. We ask that you would increase your lordship over us and change us forever. In Jesus' name, amen.